0: Chapter Eighteen of Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Lisa Reichert. Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe by Thornton Hall. Chapter Eighteen The Indiscretions of a Princess it was an ill fate that brought caroline princess of brunswick wolfenbuttel to england to be the bride of george prince of wales one april day in the year seventeen ninety five although probably no woman has ever set forth on her bridal journey with a lighter or prouder heart for as she said am i not going to be the wife of the handsomest prince in the world if she had any momentary doubt of this a glance at the miniature she carried in her bosom reassured her for the pictured face that smiled at her was handsome as that of an apollo no wonder the princess's heart beat high with pride and pleasure during that last triumphal stage of her journey to her husband's arms for he was not only the handsomest man with the best-shaped leg in europe he was by common consent the greatest gentleman any court could show picture him as he made his first appearance at a court ball his coat we are told was of pink silk with white cuffs his waistcoat of white silk embroidered with various colored foil and adorned with a profusion of french paste and his hat was ornamented with two rows of steel beads five thousand in number with a button and a loop of the same metal and cocked in a new military style see young florizel as he makes his smiling and gracious progress through the avenues of courtiers note the winsomeness of his smiles the inimitable grace of his bows his pleasant and courtly words of recognition and say if ever royalty assumed a form more agreeable to the eye and captivating to the senses florizel was indeed the most splendid prince in the world and the most perfect gentleman he was also though his bride-to-be little knew it the most dissolute man in europe the greatest gambler and voluptuary a man who was as false to his friends as he was traitor to every woman who crossed his path a man whom no appeal of honour or mercy could check in his selfish pursuit of pleasure i look through all his life thackeray says and recognise but a bow and a grin i try and take him to pieces and find silk stockings padding stays a coat with frogs and a fur collar a star and a blue ribbon a pocket handkerchief prodigiously scented one of true fit's best nutty brown wigs reeking with oil a set of teeth and a huge black stock under waistcoats more under waistcoats and then nothing french ballet-dancers french cooks horse-jockeys buffoons procuresses tailors boxers fencing-masters china jewel and gimcrack merchants these were his real companions such was the husband princess caroline came so light-heartedly with laughter on her lips from brunswick to wed little dreaming of the disillusion and tears that were to await her on the very threshold of the life to which she had looked forward with such high hopes we get the first glimpse of caroline some twelve years earlier when sir john stanley who was making the grand tour spent a few weeks at her father's court he speaks of her as a beautiful girl of fourteen and adds i did think and dream of her day and night at brunswick and for a year afterwards i saw her for hours three or four times a week but as a star out of my reach years later he met her again under sadly changed conditions one day only he writes when dining with her and her mother at blackheath she smiled at something which had pleased her and for an instant only i could have fancied she had been the caroline of fourteen years old the lovely pretty caroline the girl my eyes had so often rested on with light and powdered hair hanging in curls on her neck the lips from which only sweet words seemed as if they would flow, with looks animated and always simply and modestly dressed. Lady Charlotte Campbell, too, gives us a glimpse of her in these early and happier years, before sorrow had laid its defacing hand on her. The princess was in her early youth a pretty girl, Lady Charlotte says, with fine light hair, very delicately formed features and a fine complexion, quick glancing penetrating eyes long cut and rather small in the head which gave them much expression and a remarkably delicately formed mouth it was in no happy home that the princess had been cradled one may day in seventeen sixty eight her father charles william duke of brunswick was an austere soldier too much absorbed in his military life and his mistress to give much thought to his daughters her mother the duchess augusta sister of our own george the third was weak and small-minded too much occupied in self-indulgence and scandal-talking to trouble about the training of her children princess caroline herself draws an unattractive picture of her home life in answer to lady charlotte campbell's question were you sorry to leave brunswick not at all was the answer i was sick tired of it though so i was sorry to leave my father i loved my father dearly better than any other person but there were some unlucky things in our court which made my position difficult my father was most entirely attached to a lady for thirty years who was in fact his mistress she was the beautifulest creature un the cleverest but though my father continued to pay my mother all possible respect my poor mother could not suffer this attachment and the consequence was i did not know what to do between them when i was civil to one i was scolded by the other and was very tired of being a shuttlecock between them but in spite of these unfortunate home conditions caroline appears to have spent a fairly happy girlhood thanks to her exuberant spirits and such faults as she developed were largely due to the lack of parental care which left her training to servants thus she grew up with quite a shocking disregard of conventions running wild like a young filly and finding her pleasure and her companions in undesirable directions strange stories are told of her girlish love affairs which seemed to have been indiscreet if nothing worse while her beauty drew to her many a high-placed wooer including the prince of orange and prince george of darmstadt to all of whom she seems to have turned a cold shoulder but the wilful princess was not to be left mistress of her own destiny one november day in seventeen ninety four lord Malmesbury arrived at brunswick court to demand her hand for the prince of wales Whom his burden of debts and the necessity of providing an heir to the throne of England were at last driving reluctantly to the altar. And thus a new and dazzling future opened for her. To her parents, nothing could have been more welcome than this prospect of a crown for their daughter, while to her it offered a release from a life that had become odious. The Princess Caroline, much embarrassed on my first being presented to her, Malmesbury enters in his diary pretty face not expressive of softness her figure not graceful fine eyes good hands tolerable teeth fair hair and light eyebrows good bust short with what the french call des épaules impertinentes vastly happy with her future expectations Such were Malmesbury's first impressions of the future Queen of England, whom it was his duty to prepare for her exalted station, a duty which he seems to have taken very seriously, even to the regulating of her toilette and her manners. Thus, a few days after setting eyes on her, his diary records, She will call ladies whom she meets for the first time Mon cœur, ma chère, ma petite. I am obliged to rebuke and correct her he lectures her on her undignified habit of whispering and giggling and impresses on her the necessity of greater care in her attire on more constant and thorough ablution more frequent changes of linen the care of her teeth and so on all of which admonitions she seems to have taken an excellent part with demure promises of amendment until he is impelled to write princess caroline improves very much on a closer acquaintance cheerful and loves laughing if she can get rid of her gossiping habit she will do very well thus a few months passed at the brunswick court the ceremonial of betrothal took place in december princess caroline much affected but replies distinctly and well the marriage contract was signed and finally on twenty eighth march the princess embarked for england on her journey to the unseen husband whose good looks and splendour have filled her with such high expectations that she had not yet learnt discretion in spite of all malmesbury's homilies is proved by the fact that she spent the night on board in walking up and down the deck in the company of a handsome young naval officer conduct which naturally gave cause for observation and suspicion in the affianced bride of the future king of england it was well perhaps that she had snatched these few hours of innocent pleasure for her first meeting with her future husband was well calculated to scatter all her rosy dreams arrived at last at st james's palace i immediately notified the arrival to the king and prince of wales says malmesbury the last came immediately i accordingly introduced the princess caroline to him she very properly attempted to kneel to him he raised her gracefully enough and embraced her said barely one word turned round and retired to a distant part of the apartment and calling to me said harris i am not well pray get me a glass of brandy i said sir had you not better have a glass of water upon which he much out of humour said with an oath no i will go directly to the queen and away he went the princess left during this short moment alone was in a state of astonishment and on my joining her said mon dieu is the prince always like that i find him very fat and not at all as handsome as his portrait such was the princess's welcome to the arms of her handsome husband and to the court over which she hoped to reign as queen nor did she receive much warmer hospitality from the prince's family the queen who had designed a very different bride for her eldest son received her with scarcely disguised enmity while the king although as he afterwards proved kindly disposed towards her treated her at first with an amiable indifference and certainly her attitude seems to have been calculated to create an unfavourable impression on her new relatives and on the court generally at the banquet which followed her reception Malmesbury says i was far from satisfied with the princess's behaviour it was flippant rattling affecting raillery and wit and throwing out coarse vulgar hints about lady who was present the prince was evidently disgusted and this unfortunate dinner fixed his dislike which when left to herself the princess had not the talent to remove but by still observing the same giddy manners and attempts at cleverness and coarse sarcasm increased it till it became positive hatred what as thackeray asks could be expected from a wedding which had such a beginning from such a bridegroom and such a bride malmesbury tells us how the prince reeled into the chapel royal to be married on the evening of wednesday the eighth of april and how he hiccuped out his vows of fidelity my brother john duke of bedford records was one of the two unmarried dukes who supported the prince at the ceremony and he had need of his support for my brother told me the prince was so drunk that he could scarcely support himself from falling he told my brother that he had drunk several glasses of brandy to enable him to go through the ceremony there is no doubt that it was a compulsory marriage with such an overture we are not surprised to learn that the royal bridegroom spent his wedding-night in a state of stupor on the floor of his bedroom or that at dawn when he had slept off the effects of his debauch pages heard cries proceeding from the nuptial chamber and shortly afterwards saw the bridegroom rush out violently nor we may be sure was the prince's undisguised hatred of his bride in any way mitigated by the stories which lady jersey and others of her rivals poured into his willing ears stories of her attachment to a young german prince whom she was not allowed to marry of a mysterious illness followed by a few weeks retreat of that midnight promenade with the young naval officer of assignations with major tobingen the handsomest soldier in europe who so proudly wore the amethyst tie-pin she had presented to him these and many another story which reflected none too well on her reputation before he had set eyes on her but it needed no such whispered scandal to strengthen his hatred of a bride who personally repelled him and who had been forced on him at a time when his heart was fully engaged with his lawful wedded wife mrs fitzherbert when it was not straying to lady jersey to perdita or others of his legion of lights o love from the first day the ill-fated union was doomed one violent scene succeeded another until before she had been two months a wife the prince declared that he would no longer live with her he would only wait until her child was born then he would formally and finally leave her thus three months after the birth of princess charlotte the deed of separation was signed and caroline was at last free to escape from a court which she had grown to detest with good reason and from a husband whose brutalities and infidelities filled her with loathing she carried with her however this consolation that the great hearty people of england loved and pitied her God bless you, we will bring your husband back to you, was among the many cries that greeted her as she left the palace on her way to exile. But to quote Thackeray again, they could not bring that husband back, they could not cleanse that selfish heart. Was hers the only one he had wounded? Steeped in selfishness, impotent for faithful attachment and manly, enduring love, had it not survived remorse? Was it not accustomed to desertion? for a time the outcast princess with her infant daughter led a retired life amid the peace and beauty of blackheath where she lived as simply as any bourgeoise playing the lady bountiful to the poor among her neighbours her chief pleasure seems to have been to surround herself with cottage babies converting montague house into a positive nursery littered up with cradles swaddling boards feeding bottles and other things of the kind but even to this rustic retirement watchful eyes and slanderous tongues followed her and it was not long before stories were passing from mouth to mouth in the court of strange doings at blackheath the princess it was said had become very intimate with sir john douglas and his lady her near neighbours and more especially with sydney smith a good-looking naval captain who shared the douglas home a man moreover with whom she had had suspicious relations at her father's court many years earlier it was rumoured that captain smith was a frequent and too welcome guest at montague house at hours when discreet ladies are not in the habit of receiving their male friends nor was the handsome captain the only friend thus unconventionally entertained there was another good-looking naval officer a captain manby and also sir thomas lawrence the famous painter both of whom were admitted to a suspicious intimacy with the princess of wales these rumours sufficiently disquieting in themselves were followed by stories of the concealed birth of a child who had come mysteriously to swell the numbers of the Princess's proteges of the crèche even king george whose sympathy with his heir's ill-used wife was a matter of common knowledge could not overlook a charge so grave as this it must be investigated in the interests of the state as well as of his family's honour and by his orders a commission of peers was appointed to examine into the matter and ascertain the truth the inquiry the Delicate investigation, as it was appropriately called, opened in June 1806, and witness after witness, from the Douglases to Robert Bidgood a Groom, gave evidence which more or less supported the charges of infidelity and concealment. The result of the investigation, however, was a verdict of acquittal, the commissioners reporting that the princess, although innocent, had been guilty of very indiscreet conduct and this verdict the privy council confirmed for the princess it was a triumphant vindication which was hailed with acclamation throughout the country even the royal family showed their satisfaction by formal visits of congratulations to the princess from the king himself to the duke of cumberland who conducted his sister-in-law on a visit to the court but the days of blackheath and the amateur nursery were at an end the princess returned to london and found a more suitable home in kensington palace for some years where she held her court in rivalry of that of her husband at carlton house here she was subjected to every affront and slight by the prince and his set that the ingenuity of hatred could devise and to crown her humiliation and isolation her daughter charlotte was taken from her and forbidden even to recognise her when their carriages passed in the street or park can we wonder that under such remorseless persecutions the princess became more and more defiant that she gave herself up to a life of recklessness and extravagance that more and more isolated from her own world she sought her pleasure and her companions in undesirable quarters finding her chief intimates in a family of italian musicians or that, finally, heartbroken and despairing, she determined once for all to shake off the dust of a land that had treated her so cruelly. In August 1814, with the approval of King and Parliament, the Princess left England to begin a career of amazing adventures and indiscretions, the story of which is one of the most remarkable in history. End of chapter 18